Section 30 of Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. Part 2, Chapter 6. In 1842, Mr. Andrew Petrie discovered the Mary River. On this trip he was accompanied by Mr. Henry Stuart Russell, the Honorary W. Rottesley, third son of Lord Rottesley, and Mr. Jolliffe. Five prisoners of the Crown formed the boat's crew, and two Aborigines belonging to Brisbane made up the party. They left in an old government boat called a gig, and were away about the month. The trip was a most eventful one, and I cannot do better than give an extract from an old diary which my grandfather kept in those days, and which reads as follows. Wednesday, 4th of May, 1842. Left Brisbane town at daybreak, pulled down to the first flat, Breakfast Creek, set sail, wind from the southwest, made the north end of Bribey's Island Passage at dusk, could not distinguish the passage, lay at anchor and slept in the boat till daybreak. Fifth, made sail for the river Maruchi Doro, or the Black Swan River, arrived there at two o'clock but was afraid to enter, it being low water at the time and a heavy surf on the bar, made way for Madumba Island, distant about two miles from the river, but could not effect a landing on account of the surf, set sail for Braceville Cape, and arrived shortly after sunset in the bay or bight. There was a very heavy swell, which made it difficult landing. Before leaving the boat we were surprised to see twenty or thirty aborigines running along the beach, coming to meet us. I made signs to them to carry us ashore, and they immediately jumped into the water up to their armpits. I was the first who mounted their shoulders. They appeared bold and daring, and I immediately suspected that this must be the place where several shipwrecked seamen had been murdered by these black cannibals. Little did I think at the time that the one who carried me ashore was the principal murderer. The moment he put me off his shoulders he laid hold of my blanket, but I seized him and made him drop it. He then took hold of a bag of biscuit, and would have taken it away had I not taken strong measures to prevent him. There were no guns on shore, and those on board were not loaded, so I called for my rifle, and, loading it, kept them at bay and at the same time made them carry our luggage on shore. We then gave them a few biscuits and ordered them off to their camp, retaining the murderer and another, and kept regular watch all night, each of us taking an hour in turn. During supper I made inquiries about Wandi, the bush name of the runaway Bracefield, and was informed by the natives that he was only a short way off. Sixth. Early this morning I dispatched our two blacks and one of the strange ones with a letter to Bracefield. He could not read, but one of the blacks mentioned my name to him when he gave him the letter, and he started instantly to join us, accompanied by three of his tribe, his adopted father, and two of his friends. About eleven o'clock the black observed them coming about five miles off, and Mr. Jolliffe and I, also Joseph Russell, one of our crew, and the black fellow went along the beach to meet them. Bracefield, when we met him, had the same appearance as the wild blacks. 
I could only recognize him as a European from having known him before. When I spoke to him, he could not answer me for some time. His heart was full and tears flowed, and the language did not come readily to him. His first expression was to thank me for being the means of bringing him back to the society of white men again. He was anxious to hear about the settlement, and to know whether anything would be done to him. I assured him that no punishment would be inflicted on him, but rather things would turn to his advantage. On coming along to our camp, Bracefield said to me, I suppose, sir, you are not aware that the black you have got with you is the murderer of several white men. The moment the man observed us talking about him, he darted off into the bush in an instant, just as I was looking round at him. The men at the camp were very kind to Bracefield, got him washed, gave him clothing and something to eat and drink, and he felt himself a different being. After dinner I took him up some adjoining hills which I named after him and his friend, the black fellow, who gave me the names of the different mountains. This bay or inlet has a river in the bight, which forms several large lakes or sheets of water. A few miles inland from one of these lakes, Mrs. Fraser, wife of Captain Fraser of the Stirling Castle, was rescued from the blacks by Bracefield, and conveyed to the boats which were anchored at the same place where we encamped. 7th. Set sail about 8 a.m., wind southeast for Wide Bay, taking Bracefield with us, landed about 4 o'clock, distance 30 miles, found it difficult to land owing to the heavy swell in the bight. After landing I found an excellent boat harbour. We stayed there for the night. 8th. Sunday. Went up to the Cape and Russell Hill to take some bearings, but the morning being so hazy nothing was satisfactory. After returning about eleven o'clock, we set sail over the bay with a southeast wind. About three p.m. were in the passage leading into what is called Wide Bay. Landed for the purpose of getting a blackfellow that knew the river. Bracefield dispatched a black after him across Rottesley Bay. He arrived about an hour before sundown. We sailed down the passage about six miles, and camped on Fraser's Island. Ninth. Started at sunrise, taking the direction from the strange blackfellow. A dense fog continued until eleven o'clock. We steered northwest, and the wind springing up from the northeast, we continued sailing and pulling about among the islands, looking out for the river, but without success. Tenth. Started early, circumnavigated Gammon Island and landed nearly where we started from. Observing a black's fire on Fraser's Island, I proposed making for that point, intending to take bearings from the highland, from which I also thought I might see the river. While engaged in taking bearings, I described the river accordingly. It is called the Wide Bay River. While I was on the hill, the rest of the party procured some fresh water, and tried all they could to persuade one of the natives to accompany us across to the river, but were not successful. They appeared afraid of us, more especially of Mr. Rottesley's red shirt. We left the island about 3 p.m., reached the mouth of the river Barney at sundown, and encamped on Jolliffe's head. This point of land is of marine formation, being calciferous ironstone strata, is peculiarly laid up and intermixed, 
lies at about an angle of seventy degrees, forming a ridge of land covered with scrub along the north side. In this scrub I found a species of pine, not known before. It is similar to the New Zealand cowrie pine, and bears a cone. It forms a valuable timber. The blacks make their nets of the inner bark of this tree. Eleventh. Ascended the river about twenty miles, next day about twenty-five miles higher, and the following day about four miles, about fifty in all, where we found the navigation stopped with rocks and shingly beds. After we landed I dispatched Bracefield and our black Ulapa, or Alopa, to see if they could find any natives, but they did not succeed. Blacks were afraid. I went in among the scrubs and procured some specimens of timber. Ulapa speared a fine fresh-water mullet with flat mouth and red eyes, about two and a half pounds weight. Shortly after I took a stroll, but without my gun and quite alone, not expecting to meet with any blacks. I had not gone above half a mile from the camp when I heard the sound of natives, who appeared to be numerous. I immediately returned to the camp and sent off Bracefield and the black to them. They were absent about an hour and a half, and reported on their return that they were afraid to go near the blacks' camp, the darkies were so numerous. Bracefield was sure there were some hundreds of them, and he and the black were both very much frightened. He told me he would require two more men with firearms. Bracefield informed me the man we were in quest of, Davis, or Durham Boy, his bush name, was sure to be with the tribe, on which I offered to accompany him and assist him in procuring him. Bracefield said it would be much better for me to remain at the camp, as I should otherwise be running a great risk, and proposed that two of our party, Clark and Russell, both prisoners of the Crown, convicts, should go along with him, as if they succeeded in bringing him into our camp, something might be done for these men, in the way of mitigating their punishment. I assented, arranging with them to go to their assistance if we should hear their guns fire, and they went off accordingly about half-past four p.m., and about sundown returned with Davies. Bracefield behaved manfully in this transaction. He directed Russell and Clark to remain at a distance, while he and the black fellow should steal in upon the strange blacks. Soon after the two got in among them, the two white men were observed, and the strange blacks immediately snatching up their spears were running off to murder them, when Davies and Bracefield prevented them, and no doubt saved the lives of the pair. By this time Bracefield had been recognized by a great number of the Wide Bay Blacks who knew him, and told him, as the reason of their murderous intentions towards the two white men, that the white fellows had poisoned a number of their tribe. But Bracefield explained to them that we knew nothing of it whatever, and that we were come to explore the river and the country, and would not interfere with the blacks, provided that they did not meddle with the white men. If they did, there were a great many white men in firearms, and they would be shot immediately. I had written a note to Davies informing him that nothing would be done to him if he came into the settlement. He had, however, during this time darted off to Russell and Clark, and gave himself up to them without waiting for Bracefield and the black, and when they appeared, he told Bracefield that he, Bracefield, had come to take him for the purpose of getting his own sentence mitigated, 
in fact insisted that he had refusing to believe bracefield's assertions to the contrary until the latter got into a passion and sang a war-song at him with that davies bolted off towards us our men being scarcely able to keep pace with him i shall never forget his appearance when he arrived at our camp a white man in a state of nudity and actually a wild man of the woods his eyes wild and unable to rest for a moment on any one object he had quite the same manners and gestures that the wildest blacks have got he could not speak his mither's tongue as he called it he could not even pronounce english for some time and when he did attempt it all he could say was a few words and these often misapplied breaking off abruptly in the middle of a sentence with black gibberish which he spoke very fluently during the whole of our conversation his eyes and manner were completely wild and he looked at us as if he had never seen a white man before in fact he told us that he had nearly forgotten all about the society of white men and had hardly thought about his friends and relations for these fourteen years past and had i or someone else not brought him from among these savages he never would have left them one of the first questions he asked me was about the settlement at morton bay which i gave him to understand was now a free settlement and a very different place altogether from what it was when he left it fourteen years ago i only guessed at the period from some of the prisoners mentioning about the time he absconded as he had no idea of it himself and could not tell what time he had been in the bush at the same time i assured him that no punishment would be inflicted on him for absconding i then told davis it was my intention to proceed to bapal popol an adjoining mountain but he strongly advised me not to attempt this for if we divided our party the men that we left at the boat would all be murdered before we returned as there were some hundreds of blacks at their camp who could surround the party and kill them all he told me we would require three or four men to keep watch during the night for in all probability they would then attack us at the same time he asked if i would allow him to go back and remain with the blacks for the night and he would try and make it all right with them he pledged his word he would return to us by daybreak i told him by all means go and we would wait for him he said the blacks were determined to attack us as they would have revenge for the poisoning of their friends at some of the stations to the south davies then bade us good-night and left us the greater number of our party mostly all except myself never thought he would come back or if he did they thought it would be heading the blacks against us this made our party very timid and i therefore took what i thought the most prudent plan which was to put everything in the boat and sleep on board keeping a regular watch all night the men and ourselves would have been so much fatigued and knowing some of our party would not prove firm and were not accustomed to firearms we concluded it must be the best plan to camp in the boat we were then in a position to defend ourselves although hundreds had attacked us we kept watch all night some of us did not sleep much we were all prepared for them at daybreak i ordered three musket shots to be fired at intervals to let davies know that we were still in the same place waiting his coming about sunrise he joined us accompanied by a black who had possession of a watch belonging to a man a shepherd of mr now sir evan mackenzie who was murdered by the blacks at kilcoy station some time before 
I gave the black fellow a tomahawk for the watch, according to promise. He appeared very much afraid of us. Bracefield and the black, Ulapa, had accompanied Davies to the native encampment, and when they reached it, seeing our black so plump and fat, the white bay natives asked Bracefield and Davies if the white men would take the part of the black, and attack them if they were to kill and eat him. They both gave them to understand in reply that there were a great many white men in arms at the boat, and that in that case they would come and shoot them all. All this time Davies was at a loss to know how the white men had got there. He imagined they came over land. The moment our men appeared before their camp, they immediately said these were the men that killed their people to the southward, and instantly manned their spears and waddies, and would have sallied forth on the white men had Davies not prevented them. By this time Bracefield had stripped himself of the clothes we had given him, and he went in among them, and was immediately recognized by a great many, who invited him to sup with them and remain for the night. Davies and he made them believe that they would both return to them, and before leaving the camp Davies made them an oration, informing them that it was not to molest them, but to explore the river and the country, and to search for him, Davies, that the white men had come, and that they knew nothing of the poisoning of their friends. They intended no harm if they, the blacks, would not molest them, but if they did, they would all be shot by the whites. He also made them understand that their spears were nothing compared to our guns, and made them believe that the guns were something terrible. This had the desired effect, for in the morning at the first report of the musket we fired, not a murmur was heard, the mothers making their young ones lie quiet lest we should hear them. At the second report the greater part of them took to the scrub, and on hearing the third report they nearly all fled in the greatest consternation. Thus terminated our manoeuvres with the natives. Fourteenth. Descended the river about twenty miles. During our encampment we were all very much entertained with Davis's description of the manner of life and customs of the blacks. Also he gave the account of the manner the blacks murdered the two white men, Mr. Mackenzie's shepherds. They took a very ingenious mode, and one of the men must have suffered an awful death according to the description. Davis also described the way the blacks hunted the kangaroo and emu, which was very amusing. They make a play or game of this sport among themselves. Happening in the course of the evening to ask him if he could climb the trees with a wild vine, he started up instantly, threw off his clothes, and procuring a vine, was at the top of one of the trees with it in a few minutes. His clothes were a great annoyance to him for some days. Sixteenth arrived at our former camp on Fraser's Island about 5 p.m., conversed with a native of the island who knew Davis and Bracefield. We showed him how far our guns carried, which appeared to astonish him. There were six canoes with about twenty blacks fishing out on a flat about three miles from us. Jolliffe fired off a musket. They saw the ball hopping over the water toward them. I believe it frightened them very much. After consulting a little, they all took to their canoes and made off from us. At this time Davis was conversing with the blacks on shore. Seventeenth. On continuing our journey we were met by a great many natives who were fishing at the mouth of the passage. 
I got Davis and Bracefield to inquire of them where the white men's bones were buried, those of Captain Fraser and Brown of the Stirling Castle. They pointed round the point about two miles. Mr. Rottesley and I landed and went along the beach. While travelling along with them we ascertained the bones were those of black men. When we arrived at their camp we saw three miserable old gins. A black fellow went into his humpy and brought out a dilly full of bones. We let him understand that it was the white fellow's bones we wanted. He told Davis they were a long way off on the main beach, about ten miles. We would have gone this far, but our time was up and we had to return. Rottesley bought a dilly from the natives for a fish-hook. Then we left them and proceeded across the bay to Cape Brown, landed about five o'clock, got into that commodious boat-harbour, and remained there for the night. The blacks are very numerous on Fraser Island. There is a nut they find on it which they eat, and the fish are very plentiful. The formation and production of the islands are much the same as those on Morton Island. The timber is a great deal superior, and also the soil, the cypress pine upon Fraser Island being quite splendid. The island is sixty miles long, by ten or twelve wide. Eighteenth. It blew very fresh from the southwest, lulled towards evening. About four o'clock p.m., ordered everything into the boat, and in a short time were out at sea. After rounding Cape Brown, there was a very heavy swell setting in from the southward, and it kept on increasing so much that we could not bear up to windward. Jolliffe lost one of the guns overboard. Going nearly four points off our course, we continued on till about nine o'clock, when I ordered a bout-ship. We were only about eight miles from Cape Brown. It was no use hammering about all night, and the breeze still increasing, we landed at our old camp about eleven o'clock. Next day set sail about eleven o'clock with a southwest wind. About three miles off Cape Brown, the wind got more southerly, continued about the same course and distance we did the night before. I thought it would be better to return, and it was fortunate we did as the wind still increasing, and a very heavy sea on, we never could have reached Bracefield Head. We landed again in a honeysuckle camp about three o'clock p.m., ordered everything out of the boat to be cleaned and overhauled, hauled the boat up on the beach. The bilge water was smelling very badly. Mr. Russell and some of the boat's crew got quite sick, so much so that the former threw up his breakfast, and some of his chat went with it. Only a few ejaculations escaped his lips, a repetition of a beastly boat, a beastly sail, etc., during all the night and following days. The wide Bay River is navigable for a vessel drawing nine feet of water for about forty miles up. The country on its banks is a good sheep country, and the farther you proceed to the westward, the better the land. The blacks informed me there is a river about ten miles beyond the wide Bay River, and another more to the northwestward, and a third larger than all the others, still farther to the westward, and pointed a long way into the interior to where the water came from. This last river we thought must be the Boyne. They also informed us that there was a beautiful country about forty miles from the Bhopal mountain, extending quite to the ocean, and abounding in emus and kangaroos. According to their account, 
this country is thinly wooded. End of Part 2 Chapter 6